Welcome to Tales of American History, the Witnessing History Education Foundation podcast, educating Americans to understand the history of their country and of other countries so that they will appreciate the value of America's unique free institutions. I am Genevieve Brown, and today our host, Kent Masterson Brown, and I are speaking with our special guest, Mel Hankla. This podcast is sponsored by donors who support the Witnessing History Education Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org, the website of the Witnessing History Education Foundation. All gifts are tax-deductible and support the Foundation's work of making high-quality films, podcasts, and teacher education materials available to the public worldwide free of charge. View the Foundation's documentary films on the website and on the Foundation's new YouTube platform. View also the Foundation's free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at the website and at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook and Twitter. Now, take a journey back through time with Kent Masterson Brown and his guest, Mel Hankla, and let their storytelling transport you to the most compelling moments in American history. Dr. Hankla has recently authored a beautiful book, richly illustrated with color photography, entitled Into the Bluegrass, Art and Artistry of Kentucky's Historic Icons. He's a native Kentuckian and has a distinguished academic background. He's the founder of American Historic Services, LLC, the Contemporary Long Rifle Association, and he also serves as the editor of CLA's magazine, American Tradition. He's on the advisory board of the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts in Salem, North Carolina, and he's a member of the American Society of Arms Collectors. We're very proud that he joins us today in Lexington for our podcast. Welcome, Dr. Hankla. Mel, I um, I want to thank you first of all for um, for being here, and um, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. And um, I got to tell you, your book um, is got to be one of the most beautiful books I think I have ever seen in uh, on any subject. And the fact that it is into the bluegrass and the story of Kentucky's great icons makes it even more um, uh, uh, remarkable in that um, I, you talk about things that came out of Kentucky's early years that very few people have ever talked about. And um, the one thing you notice if you just flip through the pages – and by the way, for all of those who are listening um, – this is the most beautifully illustrated book one can imagine. Uh, most of the illustrations are in color. Um, many of the illustrations that you see uh, are of rifles. Uh, when we're going to go into those, uh, they're what you would call Kentucky rifles. And But there are other things. And um, uh, hollow wares, uh, coin silver uh, ladles. Um, uh, furnishings, chest of drawers, desks, bookcases uh, produced during the very early years of Kentucky's existence and its statehood. Uh, 
And um, it makes uh, Mel for an absolutely gorgeous uh, piece of work. And I want to first of all congratulate you on it. It's just beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so very much. It's a, you know, it's something that I really had in mind to do for many, many years, probably 25 or 30 anyway. And two years ago now at the Kentucky History Center, um, I was the curator for an exhibit that we called Into the Bluegrass mm-hmm. Rifles of mm-hmm. Frontier Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, it was co-sponsored between the Kentucky History Center and the Kentucky Long Rifle Foundation. And um, I was able to pull together maybe as many as half of the artistic Kentucky Long Rifles that are in existence, mm-hmm. along with artifacts that belong to General George Rogers Clark and, and uh, some other greats from the state of Kentucky. Um, but that was the impetus for the book. I really, I started uh, building a catalog, if you will, writing mm-hmm. a catalog to, to have to go along with this exhibit that was up for six months at the Kentucky History Center. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I knew, I was 200 pages into a book. <laughs> and, uh, and I just realized that it was, it was time. It was time to start, you know, telling this story. And, and um, I just kept seeing this tapestry, if you mm-hmm. will, of yeah. Kentucky's cultural fabric, and and uh, I just wanted to, to write about it and educate. I, I consider myself an educator, and I've worked in education pretty much my entire life. Yeah. And um, so this this was a way for me to do that. It was a yeah. way before I forgot some of this stuff, and and uh, as the book grew, I started looking for things to add, whether it be, you know, wonderful early Kentucky pottery that was made up on the on the river in Vanceburg and Maysville, or or silver by Asa Blanchard here in in Lexington, or or some of the wonderful furniture that was made across the state of Kentucky, and and I just felt that it all had a place. It, yeah. it all needed to be blended together, and it, these colors put together yeah. in this tapestry. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, we there was a somewhat of a, a predecessor book to yours, and um, that was the uh, the the book that came out not too many years ago called Collecting Kentucky, and um, but it was more about furnishings, uh, really all about furnishings, coin, silver, flatware, hollowware, all of those kind of things. What, what's remarkable, remarkable about yours is the introduction of, of the Kentucky rifle to all of this. And in, in fact, even pipe tomahawks, even um, uh, 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 carved or scrimshawed powder horns, all those things are now interjected into this story of Kentucky's artistry by your book. And, um, you know, but for the rifle, <laughs> there wouldn't have been any of the other forms of artistry, would there? Well, no, no, you're exactly <laughs> right. And and uh, Gigi Lacer and uh, she and gosh, now I'm drawing a blank on her last on her, her last name's Howard. But anyway, that produced Collecting Kentucky. What a wonderful book that is. And, you know, they featured seven or eight, maybe even nine of the extensive collections of Kentucky antiquities in their book. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to do with this, first of all, there's there's nothing in the book that I don't or can't lay my hands on a primary document to authenticate it. Mm-hmm. 
And really, the book is not about the artifacts that are the illustration in the book, Mm -hmm. but it's really about the stories of either their makers Mm -hmm. or their owners. And all of these people tie together. And as you was kind of alluding to a while ago, I've tried to talk about this book as a tapestry. Mm -hmm. And... You know, all cloth, when it's woven, there is a particular thread called a weft mm-hmm. that holds that piece of cloth together. All mm-hmm. of the other threads are, are woven on the weft. And the Kentucky rifle that you mentioned is such a, an iconic thing. Mm-hmm. You go anywhere in the world and you say Kentucky rifle, and they envision this long-barreled rifle <laughs> with a beautiful patch box and, and either, you know, Davy Crockett or, or Daniel Boone from the, the – and that's who really made it famous in our yeah. lifetime was Fess Parker and Walt Disney and <laughs> traveling right. all over and doing these Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett series. But this Kentucky, this iconic Kentucky long rifle – is truly the weft yeah. of Kentucky's cultural fabric. Yeah. And this cultural fabric is beautiful. But if it hadn't have been for this rifle, um, when people come into Kentucky, first of all, most had come from places where guns were illegal. Mm-hmm. They had never before uh, needed a rifle, needed something to go to war with or to protect themselves with um, or, or to feed themselves with. Mm-hmm. Uh, never before had they had to worry about uh, a cougar or a mountain lion or a, or a bear or the other kinds of animals that as the pioneers come in and tried to cross through the Cumberland Gap or in some way get across the Appalachian mountain chain and uh, – Frontier Kentucky, there were so many things, including the Indians, right. um, that they they needed this rifle for. But without it, they didn't eat. Mm-hmm. Without it, they didn't. Uh, you know, one of the quotes in the book. You know, I, uh, one of the great things somebody was asked a Kentucky frontiersman that's asked well, said, "Well, why did you come to Kentucky?" He said, "I came to get. I came <laughs> to see a fine brick house rise out of the cane break." And it took this rifle. This rifle was the number one tool of the day. Yeah. And and they were very very artistic. Now that's not to say they all were because there were many cheaply made rifles that uh, that even the common man could have owned. But as we know, Lexington by 1800 was called the Athens of the West. Right. Um, so these wonderful long rifles were being produced here in Lexington at Waveland Plantation by the Bryan family. Right. Right. There's an old chapter in the book on the Bryan family. And and then that even goes into the powder horns that you'd mentioned a while ago. The right. Tanzel family from, from Georgetown started producing this, this group of powder horns. But all of these things come together and hold this weft, this tapestry of our mm-hmm. cultural fabric together. And as the book started to mature, I, I had to start doing some research. I didn't know anything about Kentucky pottery. And, and um, I reached, and reached out to some people that I knew that had been students, Brendel, uh, Brenda Heindel, mm-hmm. uh, that I had met through the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Art. She was worked in the library there and has, had done several wonderful talks about the, the pottery out of Maysville, Kentucky and Vanceburg, Kentucky. And, and uh, using her research as a foundation, I was able to learn more to where I could kind of hack out a chapter on not so much on the pottery, but again, the people that were making the pottery, yeah. the stories yeah. of these potters. And um, But I wanted to f- fill it all. I know one of the, the most interesting chapters in the book uh, to me, and, and when I say chapters, a lot of these would could be vignettes, 
Mm-hmm. They're only three or four, you know, three or four uh, pages long, you know, less than uh, a lot of them, you know, 1,400, 1,500 words. But I wanted it to be that way because I know a lot of times if I'm laying in bed and I'm looking through a book and the <laughs> next chapter, you know, is 10, 12, 14 pages long, I don't, I'm not going to invest any more time. I'm going to go and go to bed. But if it's a couple of three, four pages, I'm going to read this. So I wanted to, I wanted to make it an easy read. But I wanted all of these stories to blend together, all of these yeah. colors to blend together, whether it be the, the Kentucky Penitentiary, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I talk about the, you know, the early justice here in the state of Kentucky and, yeah. and um, as well as all of the, the silver makers, all of the other things. Again, in, we're living in a, in, a, in a difficult time right now. Uh, there are so many people in our country, you say this word gun or rifle, and they immediately build up this wall. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to look. They're not even going to take a chance to say, well, what, what is this? And and in that day, this rifle, this Kentucky rifle, was the number one tool of the day. Yeah. You know, and I, 10 years ago, I would have said that it would have been like the automobile. Uh, now it's it's closer to the cell phone. <laughs> but but the difference with that rifle, it was a status symbol, much like an automobile. Yeah. And the study of these rifles, um, I'm going to say a lot of the people that's listening to this, uh, if they mm-hmm. meet a 1957 Chevrolet coming down the highway, they're yeah. going to be able to recognize it. Yeah. And they're going to be able to tell the difference between it and a 55 Ford. And if you study these rifles, they're the same way. A lot of times you can pick one up with no signature. You can tell within 10 or 15 miles of where it was made and within four or five years of when it was made just by the subtle uh, differences in in their architecture. Wow. Wow. There's a a great uh, endorsement of your book by by Frank House. And I want to read this to to the listeners because it really sums up kind of my feelings about your book. Uh, He says, whether a seasoned artist, impassioned collector, dedicated historian, or one who simply calls the bluegrass state home, there is much to be gleaned from Dr. Mel Hankla's lifelong love affair with everything Kentucky. (laughs) Stories of priceless treasures, tales of pioneer men and women, victories and triumphs, Epic struggles and tragic losses, all the while deftly knitting a narrative that places historic and invaluable icons into a tangible, exciting story of a robust and dynamic frontier Kentucky. Now that is a that is a daggone good endorsement. <laughs> That's pretty well said, isn't it? I don't think I could have said that that way. <laughs> and of course, coming from a real gunmaker himself, of uh, uh, Frank House, uh, but it is it 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 does tell all of it. I want to I want to go into a little uh, uh, discussion here for a, for a second about. His words, um, pioneer men and women, victories and triumphs, epic struggles and tragic losses. Um, We have all of that in Kentucky's frontier history. These people came in to uh, Kentucky, which, uh, Mel, it was not settled by anybody at all when they arrived. No, no. Uh, We often hear, um, and at times when we play the film we made on the life of Daniel Boone, 
people might say, well, you know, he took the, the land of the Native Americans. Well, um, he didn't. There were no Native Americans in Kentucky. By 1754, the last small trading post, which was now in, settled in, in, in Clark County, Kentucky, called Escapacathiki, had vanished. And that was it. Now, it was used to hunt by the tribes in the north as well as the south, but none of them lived here. And so they come into this, this part of the world, and they come in here at a time, 1774, 1775, when the world now is at war again. And Britain and the colonies are at war, and um, the British side with the tribes, simply because they don't have the manpower to do it themselves. And so you get this, this horrific, bloody struggle out here for this area, for this region. And um, truly, it is, a, it is a land where there were uh, victories and triumphs and epic struggles, but also tragic losses, were there not? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, just to get here, and again, I started to mention this a while ago, the, the vast majority of people that were coming into Kentucky were new immigrants to America. Mm-hmm. You, we've got to remember that America uh, was was in its infancy, and so many of these people were coming over on the boats. Um, they didn't stay long in Philadelphia or along the eastern seaboard, and they started this um, – this migration westward, this westward expansion of America that that ultimately all went all the way to California and the West Coast. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there were terrible, uh, there were terrible tragedies on all sides. There, yeah. there was tragedies with the Indians. The Indians were fighting amongst themselves. The Shawnees was fighting right. the Cherokees and right. the, <laughs> and the Seminoles and and you know and and. Oh, I've had people argue, well, they were living in Kentucky. Well, there were camps. There were people that were coming here and staying here. But the vast majority of them were renegades, and they'd been run off by their <laughs> tribes. That's right. and, and then you've got uh, Richard Henderson uh, in 17 and – I can't recall the date. I believe it's 17 and – gosh. Anyway, I've forgotten. Um, but but he literally traded with the Indians for 50 thousand dollars worth of geegaws of mm-hmm. shiny silver and beads and things yeah. for all of the 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 land south again i'm gonna i'm gonna lie if i start talking about these boundaries but it's basically from the the uh, ohio river over to the kentucky river and down to the cumberland river the cumberland, so right. it was a huge section of ground that he illegally traded for from yeah. from the Indians, and the Indians were as mad about it as uh, <laughs> b- because the people that traded it to him didn't have the the authority or the ownership to to do that but right. but um, it was going to be the new Transylvania, and this mm-hmm. word Transylvania means across the woods and and uh, you know Boone that's how Boone ended up into Kentucky because right. he was hired by Richard Henderson to blaze right. the trail, the wilderness road, and Boonesboro was going to be the capital, mm-hmm. the new capital of right. the of uh, Transylvania. Right. So there was just movement going on. It was it was an expansion. It was the it was immigration, and it was the yeah. the tracks of immigration yeah. as new Americans were heading westward. Yeah, 
Yeah, that uh, the treaty that uh, Henderson negotiated with the uh, with the Shawnee uh, with the Cherokee rather um, at uh, Sick at uh, Sycamore Shoals down on the Watauga River was in March 1775. Okay, and um, Daniel Boone would be hired by him to cut a road, a path from Cumberland Gap to the Kentucky River, what is now we call the Kentucky River. And yet yeah, you're right. And that would be the capital wherever that was at the, at the, at the, on the bank of the Kentucky River. And um, Boone got to what is now the site of Boonesboro um, on April 1st, um, having cut that path with a large group of axemen. But we, we, a lot of people don't connect this dot, and that is – that's April 1st. Eighteen days later, on April 19, were the opening shots on the Lexington Green in Massachusetts that started the American Revolution. And that thing would expand across all the colonies and the territories beyond the Appalachians. And uh, the war out here was particularly rough, particularly difficult, and particularly bloody. And... um, I was flipping through, uh, Mel, um, a, um, some work that uh, our friend, late friend Jay Winston Coleman put together. And um, uh, for, the, uh, for the British to begin an invasion of Kentucky in 1780, this is the summer of 1780, uh, there was a record, uh, an account of what the British were going to give to the combined tribes that would join the invasion. And um, first of all, there were 750 pounds of vermilion, and that was used for paint, put on their faces. Yes, yes. Uh, 8,000 pounds of powder, 14,975 ball lead and shot for the rifles, muskets. Yes, yes. 476 dozen scalping knives— and 188 tomahawks is what they gave the tribes on the eve of they launching that invasion. And you mentioned in your book how um, one of your favorite gunsmiths uh, settled on the banks of the South Fork of the Licking River, right across from the site of Ruddle Station and right near Martin Station yes. in Bourbon County. And, of course, it was those two stations that were struck by that invasion force and, um, I mean, in a gruesome way where the, the, the British had artillery pieces with them, two of them. They uh, threatened to open fire uh, and uh, Isaac Ruddle, Captain Isaac Ruddle, agreed to surrender a Ruddle station and then the British lose control of the tribes and they go in and begin massacring people. Yeah. Um, once they... Uh, kill as many as I guess they wanted and took prisoners with the rest out of Ruddle Station. They crossed over and did the same thing to Martin Station. And, I mean, these are the, these are the tragedies that, uh, that House is talking about in his, in his comment about your book. And we, we, we lose sight of just how, what a struggle it was to settle Kentucky and what was the West beyond the Appalachian Mountains. And, um, Yet it's fascinating that 
the rifle is the thing that's, that's used to defend this place and to provide for food as well. But that, you know, no sooner had that war finally come to an end in Kentucky, it was long after the Treaty of Paris in 1783, but nevertheless, by the mid-1780s, um, you're starting to see civilization explode here. And it's this remark by J. Winston Coleman. He says, it's in your book. It says, the mark of the tomahawk was still fresh on the forest trees when early travelers to Kentucky noted with surprise the exquisite silverware on the frontier. And what's so fun about your book is that the very men who made the rifles were the ones who were – many of them were also <laughs> making the silver. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, they, they – again, I go back to Lexington, Kentucky, this bluegrass region being the Athens of the West. And by 1800, you know, we've got people coming in that's leaving records that, you know, that it's uh, comparable to Philadelphia. You know, the the, yeah. the artwork and the furniture and um, – and it was a cosmopolitan region, you know, and they, they talk about early Kentucky, and I've never really seen it written, but it's one of the first places that there was not a lot of discrimination going on. Even mm-hmm. the Irish in the the bluegrass region, I'm not saying everywhere, but in the bluegrass region, everyone was being welcomed in. Mm-hmm. Everyone was working together, and it was, uh, it was quite a place. It yeah. was quite a utopia there for – you know, for many years. Yeah, I mean, even, even the. Frankly, I I remember <clears throat> in in one of Winston Coleman's texts in a pamphlet he did on the British invasion of Kentucky, even um, the commander of the British in Detroit, who uh, gave the okay for uh, Henry Byrd to launch that invasion, that ended up at Ruddle Station. He commented that. The, the land these settlers who are pouring into Kentucky, the land these settlers want is second to none on earth in terms of its fertility and usefulness. Now, that's a, that's a British officer from Detroit making a statement like that yeah. because he's hearing this place is absolutely spectacular. Well, and there was a whole, you know, there there was a large percentage of the group at Ruddleton Martin Station that were Germans yeah. and they'd moved into here from Brock's the Brock's Gap region of right. what is now Rockingham County, right. Virginia. Well, they had friends and family that had come in and had settled around the Ruddleton Martin Station's region and they were captured. They were mm-hmm. either killed or they were taken by Byrd and the Indians to Detroit. Mm-hmm. Well, by 1783, you had friends and family moving in to pick up the pieces and see what yeah. was left and to take those lands that had been claimed. So there's there's a constant stream of these Virginians uh, that had been here way early, that had come yeah. in in the 1740s and had it stayed in the Brock's Gap region for 25 or 30 years. But, but there was a huge migration yeah. of these Virginians that was coming into Kentucky to pick up the pieces. Yeah, yeah. Let me go into a few. Just, just I want you to talk about a few gunsmiths. Okay. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Mel, too. Uh, you can look at like Joe Kendig's book on uh, thoughts on the Kentucky rifle in the Golden Age. 
a spectacular book. It's yes. unbelievable. It's the Bible. It's the Bible. But you know, those guns are all, you know, Pennsylvania gunsmiths and for the most part. And and uh, what's so interesting – and they call those Kentucky rifles too, by the way. Yes. <laughs> for, but, but, but what you have delved into are ones who made those rifles in Kentucky. So they are true Kentucky rifles. Yes. And uh, I touched upon this just a minute ago when we talked about Ruddles and Martin Station, the humble brothers um, settling um, – in um, not too far from uh, – I think Conrad Humble was the one who settled right near the site of Martin Station. Yes. Tell me about – tell the viewers about them, uh, the Humble boys. Let me – I'm going to back up just a minute to this uh, moniker, if you will, of Kentucky Rifle. Yeah. You know, there's been an age-old – Cold War, if you will, between the state of Pennsylvania and the state of Kentucky over the nomenclature of this gun. And I said a while ago you could go anywhere in the world and say Kentucky Rifle, and they knew what you were talking about. Well, and I believe it was 1963. There's actually a chapter in, in the book about this. Um, Bill Scranton from, from uh, Pennsylvania, the governor of Pennsylvania, had issued a challenge to the state of Kentucky, to the to the shooters of Kentucky. And, and uh, he wanted for us to take 15 marksmen, bring them to Boone's uh, home place in Pennsylvania right outside of Reading, and have a shooting match. And if they beat us, the name for here ever after was going to be Pennsylvania Rifle. Mm-hmm. And their logic of it is is that this that really Pennsylvania – and the eastern seaboard of Virginia is where this gun evolved into what we know it as the Kentucky rifle today. Right. However, where it was made famous and where these guns were being made to use was Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And Kentucky at that time was across the woods. It was mm-hmm. across the mountains. It would have included Tennessee and Ohio. This term, you know, Kentucky was where people were were going to, this, this first wave of, of migration. Yeah. Um, but um, it's just the Humble Brothers is part of the bunch that moved from Rockingham County, Virginia, into the Ruddles Mills area. Um, the earliest gunsmith that we have recorded or that we can document, there's Squire Boone was a gunsmith, but mm-hmm. there's none of these guns that we can document. There's mm-hmm. none signed. Uh, there is a tomahawk that, that descended in his family that uh, family history says that he made it, and I think he probably did because he was trained in Philadelphia and would have been a wonderful gunmaker. But there's there's something more to this. Again, mm-hmm. I, I said a while ago talking about this this uh, status symbol. These rifles were not only a status symbol to the owner but to the maker. And mm-hmm. and Michael Umble come in with James Harrod. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was here by 1774. He was an armorer for George Rogers Clark when when he started out from from Louisville. Actually, there's a historical marker on the corner of Main and Seventh Street in Louisville of of Michael Umble's gun shop. And, oh, it's cool. Um, and he's buried by 17 and 83. He was in uh, r- right on the Mercer Boyle County lines. There's mm-hmm. a, uh, and he's he's buried there. But then we've also found the remnants of his gun shop there. We, really? And uh, really? so his gun shop was there. We know where his gun shop was at. Um, then Conrad moved in later. He wasn't here until probably. 
again, I'm thinking 1787. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm having trouble recalling dates today for some reason. But uh, <laughs> they, um, but he had a son named Noah, and Noah actually apprenticed uh, with his uncle Michael. And there was even yeah. after after Conrad died, he actually died in 1790. And uh, there's only one rifle known that's signed by him. It's featured in the book. Yeah. And there's, I guess now we have three rifles that are signed by Michael, one that belonged to, to um, gosh, Captain James Floyd uh, that's still in the family. And then mm. the, there's the – and you mentioned Joe Kendig. Um, <laughs> the, the, the Michael Lumber rifle come from the Kendig collection. Is that right? And uh, <laughs> I had been able to purchase the Conrad Umble rifle and I'd started – um, pouring through the books and, and this thoughts on the Kentucky rifle and its golden age that Kendig wrote in 1960 is considered the Bible, if you will, in the, long, in the long rifle, the Kentucky rifle yeah. world. And I'm going to go back to this right quick too. Even in Pennsylvania, we've got documents now. For a long time, people kept saying this Kentucky rifle come from the song The Battle of New Orleans that was done, you know, after the Battle of New Orleans. But it was really common. This term was really common by 1803 in New York, Baltimore, London, newspapers to describe describe this gun. But we now have a document that's dated 1798 uh, from a Pennsylvania gun shop listing what he made. And one of the type of firearms that he made were Kentucky rifles. Wow, really? So even in Pennsylvania, yes. this this term was was being used. Yeah. But but going back to to Michael and Michael Umble and Joe Kendig, I'd started studying and and I'd I'd went to Kendig's and we're talking about six hundred rifles. It just mm-hmm. kind of leaned up against the wall and and I started going through these rifles and I didn't see anything and he had told me nothing was for sale and and. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, I, and I was really wanting to buy something. You know? I can and, only imagine. And uh, so I'd went all through all of these guns, and and my friend Earl Lanning that I dedicated the book to, that's kind of my mentor and my daddy and best friend, and who's now eighty eight years old and still going strong. Um, but he was talking to to old Joe, and they were having a conversation, and and you know I, I thought, man, I, I better go through these again. Mm-hmm. And I, halfway around the room. Now, not once all day. That you know, these are so many. You know, we're talking in excess of six hundred. So, so there's so many rifles. You kind of have to have a rhyme or a reason, and it's real overwhelming. So, I was kind of going from my left to the right, the same way that I would read. Now, not once during the day had I ever reached back. Yeah, I'd always pulled out what was in front of me and look yeah. at it and went on to the next one. Yeah, and I was halfway around the room. And for some reason, I reached back maybe three feet, I mean a long reach, uh-huh. and picked up a gun, uh-huh. picked up a rifle. And one of the things as a collector and, and as a student of these rifles for years in looking at a rifle, I've made it the exercise to not look for a signature, but rather to look at the artwork mm-hmm. and to test myself, to teach myself how to locate where this rifle was made by its architecture and by its artwork Mm -hmm. and when it was made by those same subtle architectural differences. But this time, immediately when I picked it up, I rolled it over and I could clearly see H-U-M-B-L-E on top of the barrel. Oh, 
Yeah. And the only reason that I could read that oh. was because I had seen the Conrad Umble. Yeah. And I wreck you know, it immediately. Wow. And and I would have never thought that Joe Kendig had heard a word of anything that, that I was saying and that his daughter was there, Jennifer, and yeah. uh, and Jennifer said, What have you found? And Joe just kinda stopped and he stuck his arm out and he said, Your man humble, eh? <laughs> now the Joe Kendig I'm talking about is now ninety seven years old and he's just the son of Joe Kendig <laughs> Jr. that wrote the book in 1960. Gosh, oh so he's, you know, this gentleman's lived his life there. And he goes on to tell me, he said, you know, my father died uh, confused about the the name on this rifle. He had no idea. He knew it was different, but he had no idea who made it. And wow. you've, you've, uh, you've closed the circle, and I'm going to sell it to you. Wow. It was, was kind of wow. like buying a house. <laughs> I'll uh, bet. <laughs> but, but, but we bought it and we brought it home. Wow, that is such a great story. Yeah, Joe, for those of you, Joe Kendig uh, wrote a book called Thoughts on the Kentucky Rifle in the Golden Age. The Golden Age meaning the age where these were really beautifully not only carved wood uh, stocks, curly maple – but um, it was the, the furnishings on them. The patch box were intricate, and they became a work of art. And um, so he cataloged in this huge book uh, all these rifles, photographs of them and their makers and descriptions. Uh, it is a stunning book. And i got to tell you, on a personal level, uh, uh, our, our mutual friend um, – uh, Clemens Cowell from Danville, Kentucky, yes. <laughs> uh, came up to my office once. Uh, I lived in Danville for a while and practiced, moved my law office to Danville. And he came up to my law office once with the Ken Dig book and he put it on my desk and he said, uh, I'd like you to have that. And he, there was no, there's no finer fellow in the world, a more sincere friend than Clem Cowell. He was just a terrific, terrific character, and it's a book I treasure to uh, to this day. Um, um, uh, but Kendig for everybody was a literally put together the as 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 uh, has been said the Bible on the Pennsylvania Kentucky rifles. He likes to refer to it at times. Uh, guns made in Pennsylvania but are known as the Kentucky Rifle. That's the terminology for him. And, you know, I want to go back to Clem just a minute. You know, <laughs> what a wonderful fellow. And, okay. and, you know, there's different people got, got different opinions of Clem. You know, um, but but I, I wouldn't have done what I've done. I wouldn't have been able to mm. have accomplished the this book or yeah. the research that I've done if it hadn't have been Clem. Yeah. Um, and I was telling you earlier that him and my father had known one another growing up and yeah. were stationed close by in the yeah. in the military. But again, going back to Earl Lanning that I dedicated the one of the people that I dedicated my book to and, and in the front of the book you'll see a bronze that Earl did of of uh, Simon Kenton. Yes. Um but I'm my father died when I was in twenty. And when I was twenty three I met Earl. And Earl took me to Clem's, but 
and it was such a, a rude awakening. And at that time, I was I was working, I was working on my doctorate degree, and and Earl looked at me and he said, "You need to forget about that book learning. You need to spend all of that time with Clem Caldwell, and you'll learn a whole lot more than you will sitting in front of some professor." And and he was correct. And yeah. and I finished my coursework, and I literally done that. Uh, Clem was getting long in the tooth and getting some age, but we had a date every Wednesday for a number yeah. of years. Yeah. I'd pick him up at noon. We'd go at Long John Silver's and get a fish <laughs> sandwich, and then we'd drive around the, you know, Danville and Boyle, all the different areas, and and um, I learned so much from Clem. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's really, really. Uh, I just can't say enough about how much of a mentor yeah. uh, that he was to me. Let me let me tell the folks. Um, Clem Cowell lived in Danville. Lived on the road to Harrodsburg, out of out of Danville, in a uh, Greek revival uh, home, beautiful house that uh, stood on the site of Cowell's station. That station is on John Filson's 1784 map of Kentucky, yeah. uh, Cowell Station. And I asked, I asked Clem, I said, Clem, um, tell me, uh, you were, were you born in Danville? He said, yeah, I was born in this house. And he says, I'm the eighth generation born in this house, in this family. Well, I mean, there's, there was smack you right in the face. I mean— here is the flesh and blood of the very people you and I are talking about. Absolutely. <laughs> and what's interesting about Clem is that it's not only him, it's his mother, it's his grandmother, his great-grandmother were all collectors yeah. of, of Kentucky artifacts, principally uh, Indian arrowheads, axe heads, all sorts of things that – Mostly the prehistoric Indians left behind uh, who did not exist anymore in Kentucky when Daniel Boone came in. And uh, there, were, there were historic Indians, but they were in Ohio or in what is now Tennessee. Um, but they collected these things. So the, the collecting of things like this was just embedded in his family because of their history here. I, I don't think I ever was – in a place with a person who had such a connection to Kentucky's frontier as Clem Cowell. Absolutely. And and each one of those if you you've obviously been there and he had such a wonderful collection of Indian artifacts. But his you know, his mailbox was was quite a walk <laughs> from the house. Uh-huh. And every day he would pick one Indian rock and put it in his pocket and he would rub it and hold it while it's in his pocket all the way to the mailbox. <laughs> while he was walking, he said he always thought about the person that made it. Wow. And then when he left the mailbox, he put it in his other hand, in his other pocket. And on the way back, he always thought about who used it. Wow. And that's oh, – that gives me part, goosebumps. Well, but that's part of the book. <laughs> yeah. That's why yeah. I, what I have done with this book is yeah. I – you know, OK, we talk about a tomahawk and Meriwether Lewis's tomahawk is, is in the book. Yeah. I don't talk much about the tomahawk. I've got great, wonderful photographs of it. But what I want to talk about is Meriwether Lewis. Mm-hmm. I want to tell Meriwether Lewis's story. 
And that's throughout this entire book. If yeah. if I could not find a document, it's like Daniel Boone. You know, I I was I was closing up on the book, and I didn't have anything about Daniel Boone. There's just so few artifacts that you can really document. And out of the blue, this uh, this beaver trap showed up that it belonged to the Huntington Museum of Art. Yeah, and. Um, all of a sudden, here's a story. I can't say that it's Boone's, but there's a wonderful family history that says that Daniel Boone gave this to Patty Huddlestone. The family's now uh, Huddleston, uh, but you know the the authenticity of the of the story and the provenance is dead on. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I was it, it allowed me to include Boone and talk about. Yeah. I had you know. I, even from Kentucky, I knew yeah. of Boone's Kentucky escapades. I had no idea he'd spent 14 years in West Virginia yeah. up on the canal. I, I, up you know, on the canal. So right. as as I wrote this book, I learned so much about Kentucky's history and all of these little tidbits, all of these splashes of color, if you will, yeah. in the tapestry of our culture fabric. It's, it's a, it, is, it, is a, uh, it is a tapestry indeed. Um, you know, Clem too, and I'll end, end it here with, with Clem, but— um, he uh, he also, of course, had a collection of Kentucky rifles, and um, one of them he had was Hancock Taylor's, yes, and who who came in with Boone's party that opened the Wilderness Road, and uh, was killed, and um, but you know he, on the walls were all the rifles, and all around in glass cases were all the Indian artifacts. It was. It, I, I can't even begin to tell you how I felt in that room. With well, I, I know exactly how you felt because I felt <laughs> the same way. And, you know, the first the, the first American long rifle, the first Kentucky rifle I ever bought was from Clem, and I'm sure you've held it. It's featured in the book. It's signed mm-hmm. by Jacob Young. It's in the chapter, Unexpected Artistry of the, of the Southern Frontier. And uh, it, it probably has influenced my – Artistry and and uh, my thought processes about Kentucky as much as anything yeah. ever has. Yeah, um, that wasn't the gun that William Whitley carried, is it? No, well, okay. William Whitley's gun was also by Jacob Young. Yes, it, it's still at the William Whitley yeah. house. It's belonged. Um, I, you know, I'm not for sure who really owns that rifle, but anyway, it's at the William Whitley yeah. House in Stanford, yeah. Kentucky. Wonderful, again, a wonderful story. The in in that chapter, there's great pictures. The, the William Whitley's house was the, you know, it was on the Wilderness Road, and all of the greats had stopped there. And and William Whitley is the name that that we just don't hear that much about. And he was every bit as important as as Daniel Boone. Anybody, and, yeah, absolutely. And like Sam, Simon Kenton, you know, right. more people know Simon right. Kenton, but William Whitley, you know, was so important. And another chapter, one of my, one of my favorites, you were talking a while ago about Boone and, and him settling Boonesboro and the Henderson, you know, land grant or grab, if you want to call it. <laughs> the, one of the people that came in with Boone, uh, was William Calk. Yes. And I've got a chapter on William Calk, and yeah. I, I found it, you know, his his journal exists. It's at the Kentucky History Center, and some of the greatest things, you know, that, that were really telling the story of this trip, this treacherous trip into Kentucky. But I really loved it because he, he said, well, you know, um, they'd been at Boonesboro not long, but they were casting lots. Mm-hmm. You know, for their property, everybody yeah. was going to get a piece of property, so they were casting lots, and and he said, "I went fishing 
and I catched three cats. So it just led you to believe, you know, he didn't really care much about the property. You know, he'd rather he'd rather go fishing. But then, you know, one of his comrades was Enoch Smith. It's a wonderful gun builder. And, uh, you know, the only known Enoch Smith rifle is, is featured in the book. And he had moved on to Mount Sterling, pretty much given credit yeah. for settling, you know, Mount Sterling, Kentucky. And his house still stands yeah. in Mount Sterling. But, you know, he was a silversmith. Yeah. And actually the uncle of Asa Blanchard, our most revered and known silversmith in the state of Kentucky. Yeah. So it just all ties together. It These really men all ties does. together and the, the stories all blend together. And yeah. I, 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 somebody bought a book and and they wrote me this most wonderful letter and said you know i sat down to thumb through it thinking that it was a it was a coffee table book and and five hours later i was only about a third through and and it read it read more like a novel you know it it does it does it reads like a novel yeah well that's that's what i wanted and and it's all documented yeah it's all true yeah yeah well, you know, um, you mentioned earlier that some people say that the uh, name Kentucky Rifle came from the, the poem about the Kentuckians yeah. at the Battle of New Orleans in um, 1815, um, uh, January of 1815. And I uh, – uh, uh, let, let me indulge the listener by reading just one paragraph from that, uh, from that poem, one set of – one verse – uh, first of all, the name of the poem is called Hunters of Kentucky or Half Horse and Half Alligator, which <laughs> which is what these Kentuckians refer to themselves as in the, in the poem anyway. And uh, it first of all sets up uh, that the hunters of Kentucky uh, went to New Orleans to um, uh, reinforce uh, Jackson's – Andrew Jackson's forces there and um, – and that the the British were uh, attack were, attacked them, and um, and then it's it reads as follows, but Jackson he was wide awake, and was not scared of trifles, for well he knew what aim we'd take with our Kentucky rifles, <laughs> so he led us down the swipe to the cypress swamp. The ground was low and mucky. There stood John Bull, meaning the British, in martial pomp, and there was old Kentucky. <laughs> you can't get any better than that, Mel. No, no you, you can't. And okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna go off on a tangent here. Okay, go right Frank ahead. House would say down a rabbit hole. <laughs> All right, I I grew up in Jamestown, Kentucky, on Lake yeah. Cumberland. Yeah, there's no iron ore there. Uh-huh. Until I moved to eastern Kentucky, Carter <laughs> County, Grayson, I was kind of – oh, I'd seen an iron furnace, I think, at, you know, at Land Between the Lakes or somewhere. But I didn't know anything about our iron industry. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that the iron industry in Kentucky was third in the nation until after 1830. Yeah. And the reason that I bring this up now, there's in Owingsville, Kentucky, right off of I-64 within a half a mile, there's an iron furnace. Um, it was originally called the Bourbon Iron Furnace. Um, Andrew Jackson bought Almost all of the cannonballs and grape shot <laughs> that was used at the Battle of New Orleans, and they were they were taken to Maysville by ox cart and sent down the river. Yeah, 
And it just flabbergasted me. Here's this iron furnace that's huge and it's still standing. And, and it, it was fired for the first time in 1790. And it was nicknamed the old thunder mill mm-hmm. because of all of the ammunition that it was making. But really what it was set up for, we talked earlier about these hardships. When these people were coming in, they couldn't bring a plowshare. They couldn't bring an iron pot that they needed to boil salt water or to wash clothes in. or they or None of this. So as early as, as 1790, two years before we reached statehood, we've got an iron furnace that's fired up making 10-gallon kettles. <laughs> It's incredible. And then by the War of 1812, you've got Andrew Jackson is, is ordering cannonballs right. from from this place. And and I just, you know, again, there's a chapter on it in the book, and I've got right. a picture of Andrew Jackson on his horse, and there's ca- cannonballs at his feet. And, and when I see that, still to this day, I can't keep from thinking, I wonder if those cannonballs were made in Owensville, Kentucky. <laughs> well, you know, there were there were iron furnaces here in Lexington, in yeah. Fayette County. We have an ironworks pike. Yes. Which, of course, gets its name from that. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, absolutely essential to life. Uh, not no, not to mention just making cannonballs. Oh, uh, yeah. But, but to, like you say, iron pots, kettles to boil salt, boil down water to salt, uh, was just absolutely essential. And... Um, but, you know, your book uh, just, again, it covers the entire tapestry of what it took to 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 uh, settle a place like Kentucky and then what that artistry did for the generations thereafter to civilize this place. Well, not just Kentucky, but the nation. Oh, yeah. Oh, and and I had I had a wonderful friend and mentor, and her name was Brooks Howard, and she worked with the Kentucky state government, the Kentucky. Sure, uh, I remember her. Yeah. yeah, and and she would always say, I could hardly ever have a conversation that it sometimes that she wouldn't say that Kentucky was the daughter of the East and the mother of the West. Oh. And that's I just cool. think that says it so well because, yeah. you know, there's still to this day, there's something about Kentucky. There's this cosmopolitan aspect of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And these people would come and maybe it was only sojourn for – and they only stayed a few years. But then they went on to Missouri. Yeah. Then they went further west. And so many of the wonderful rifles that are, are pe- featured in the book were found in, uh, in Missouri yeah. and further west, Wisconsin. Yeah, like the Boones. Yeah. Like the Bryans. Yeah. All went to Missouri. They did. Yeah, they sure did. They sure did. Let me just talk for just a minute about uh, Daniel Boone Bryan. Okay. <clears throat> um, here in Fayette County. Uh, for those of you who are are Kentuckians, you can see his grave at the Lexington Cemetery along with all of his kin. He is the nephew of Daniel Boone and um, – uh, but his his he settled originally out the um, what we call the Nicholasville Road at a place called Waveland, which has been a state property, a state historic a part, a, a property for quite some time. Uh, tell us about Daniel Boone Bryan. Well, in order for me to tell you about him, I want to tell you a little about his father. Okay, <laughs> uh, his father was William Bryan. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a gunsmith, and he was an armorer under General Griffith Rutherford in in the Revolutionary War. 
Um, going back to the chapter a while ago, we talked about Jacob Young and the unexpected artistry chapter. Um, one of the rifles that was made for Casper Mansker, yeah. who is to Tennessee, kind of what Daniel Boone is to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both armorers together, Thomas mm-hmm. Simpson, and you had William Young, who was the father of Jacob Young, who obviously. Um, at least worked in close proximity to Thomas Simpson. And then, then you had William Bryan. Mm-hmm. Well, William come early on and settled Bryan Station right. and was killed by the Indians early on. But Daniel Boone Bryan, his son, was old enough. He was also listed as an armorer at that time. And he carried on this gunsmithing trade. And in the book, I've got a chapter talking about Lexington rifles. And there's, a, there's, there's different characteristics, but one specifically is this patch box that's kind mm-hmm. of got a almost a propeller-looking finial on the end of the box, kind mm-hmm. of a, a flower or a four-petal thing. And Daniel Boone Bryan is given the credit of designing or establishing this Lexington school of gun making. Um, you you can take a rifle that's made within a 30 or 40 square mile area of Lexington, Kentucky, and I can spot it 100 feet away mm-hmm. just by its architecture. Wow. And But he was very, very important. He had so much going on. He, you know, he had a gunpowder mill. He was making gunpowder there. He had a Bible school. The house <laughs> at Waveland that we know now, they actually tore down his old, Daniel Bryan's old stone house. And his son, I believe it's Joseph. Joseph That, that built yeah. the, the house that's there now, the plan, right. you know, antebellum kind of. Um, house that's there now, and but their their story is Kentucky. Their story mm-hmm. is is coming in from North Carolina, settling in Kentucky, having tragedy. I mean, you know the oh. the father died early on; he wasn't here very long at all. But they've left such a mark in uh, in the produce. They're, they're these wonderful artistic long rifles that they were making yeah. um, are still revered and sought after today. Maybe maybe there's twenty five. Yeah. That we know about. Yeah. Well, his father, Daniel Boone, Brian's father, William, married Daniel Boone's sister. Yes. And Daniel Boone married William Bryan's sister. Right. <laughs> they were double first cousins. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so hence the name Daniel Boone Bryan. <laughs> well, and, and two of the Bryan boys married Simpson girls. So, it, it's, again, it's all intermingled. The story all ties together. Well, they always say that about Kentucky, you know. You, 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 you never speak ill of, a, of, a, of another Kentuckian at, at any function, party, or anything. Because it's going to be his cousin probably. Probably. <laughs> Uh, so, and, and but but Daniel Boone Bryan really had quite an enterprise. I mean, it was um, almost a huge, yeah. a huge uh, enterprise out there. Um, and it was not only just making rifles, but it was just a whole lot of other things going on that he yes. that he did. And um, <clears throat> I, as a kid, um, uh, I I worked out there at Waveland uh, with uh, Doctor Hamilton Tapp, yes. who, who ran it then. And um, I remember the dining room of that house is the only only room that has stone fireplaces at either end of the dining room. Yes. And it was always understood out there that that was the cabin, that framed the cabin of Daniel Boone Bryan, and, uh, which is now the dining room 
Uh, now it all has changed because it's a brick facade to the yes, house and yes. so forth. But you can still see the stone fireplaces. And wherever else in the house is brick. So something is different there than elsewhere. And it was always understood that was it. Whether that's so or not, I don't know. But um, uh, this – and by the way, all, the, all those Bryans were buried out there first. But then they were all removed to the Lexington Cemetery. And Daniel Boone Bryan has quite a stone there now. Uh, but they're a very interesting crowd. Um, the Bryans in particular – um, of course, the settlement of Bryan Station that was besieged in 1782 um, is one of the great stories yes. of the American Revolution. Well, and you know, and the, the Daughters of the American Revolution has just had that, you know, the, the first monument that was produced by women, for women, was, I believe, in 1898, and it was like two or three years after the Daughters of the American Revolution had been formed, mm -hmm. and it was the monument at Bryan Station. Mm -hmm. And there's this, you know, this wonderful story of the siege. You know, the fort was under siege. They, From their scouts, they knew there was a huge contention of Shawnee, and the women realized they were out of water. So Mary Polly Hawkins Craig... Mm -hmm. Uh, whose, which pic was, whose picture you have in the book? Who, yeah, yeah <laughs> I've never was, seen that before. Oh, that was a coup. <laughs> uh, so she led these women down, yeah. you know, that were scared to death, but they were banking on the Indians not getting them. But it literally saved the fort. They were able to bring water back, not just to drink, but to put out any fires that the Indians had tried to set. But, yeah. but here the story goes on further. You got Mary Polly Hawkins Craig, who was the mother of of Elisha Craig, that's been credited at least for making some of the earliest bourbon whiskey in the state. <laughs> and who was a Baptist preacher too? That's right. <laughs> And then his son, William Craig's powder horn is in the book, and he was a surgeon at the Battle of the Thames yeah. where Tecumseh was killed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, that uh, speaking of the Battle of the Thames, um, this for everybody is a battle fought in September 1813. Um, and it is a, an engagement up not far from Detroit. Uh, it's a battle that occurred right after Oliver Hazard Perry's victory over the British on Lake Erie. And um, this is uh, uh, a, K a Kentucky militia led by uh, our first governor, Isaac Shelby, uh, fighting uh, British troops under Major General Henry Proctor, uh, along with the uh, tribes under Shawnee Chief Tecumseh. And his um, and his Indian allies, and it's right near what they then called Moravian Town, which is what some people call the Battle of the Thames, is the Battle of Moravian Town. But this is where uh, William Whitley and Simon Kenton. This is really their last, their last. In, well, certainly it is the last for, for William, William Whitley, Whitley yeah. because he's killed in it. But um, uh, it is the last uh, really engagement you're going to see Simon Kenton in. Uh, these are aging guys. But t tell the viewer, the listeners, a little bit about the Battle of the Thames and William Whitley there. Well, to me, one of the the great things about this, of course, you know the 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 Battle of the River Raisin um, had really slaughtered a bunch of Kentuckians, and and and. It, 
There's something that we still have in Kentucky that amazes me, and it's patriotism. Mm -hmm. I think there's more patriotism in the state of Kentucky than anywhere I've ever uh, encountered anywhere else in the United States. I agree with you. Um, But they felt like – the Kentuckians felt like that Britain was trying to once again rob us of our freedoms. And they were ready when, when, first of all, Isaac Shelby was our first governor, mm-hmm. and he really did not want to be our fifth governor. Um, but they come to him and said, mm-hmm. hey, you know, we need you. Mm-hmm. And and he said, okay. He said, if, if I'm needed, I'll, I'll run. Of course, won the election with no, no problems. And then uh, our ninth president, uh, um, Harrison, Mm-hmm. William Henry Harrison. William Henry Harrison, uh, you know, mm-hmm. even wrote to Isaac Shelby and said, we we need you. And, mm-hmm. you know, if if you could, you know, he had heard that he had 2,000 men. And he said, we, we'll take your 2,000 and more. Mm-hmm. And uh, he literally gathered them up. And, and um, but but the Battle of the Thames, the to me, the really heart and soul of the Battle of the Thames is something called the forlorn hope. Yeah. When Richard Mentor Johnson uh, was kind of the, I, I guess the leader, if you will, and Isaac Shelby was somewhat under him, and and the the British had already kind of left, but you had Tecumseh and the Shawnee that were really making some headway, and he called for twenty volunteers. Mm-hmm. And he knew it was going to be kind of a suicide mission, but he felt like that they was at a point that if they didn't do something, they were going to lose this battle. And they were going to go through the through the middle. They were going to mm-hmm. ride through the middle of the Indians, and and kind of that would give a chance for people to circle and and uh, give them a different battle advantage. And uh, and that's what he did. And and William Whitley, at sixty four years old, was the first to volunteer. Can you imagine? Sixty four. Sixty four years old. Right. And uh, there were sixteen when when at the first volley of shots, sixteen of these men. Uh, were shot off of their horses mm-hmm. and killed. There was only one man that wasn't wounded, and his name was Garrett Wall. Mm-hmm. And his horse took a bullet between the eyes that was meant for him, and it dropped him under the, the line of fire. So he wasn't wounded. Um, and Garrett, you know, William Whitley was indeed killed. His rifle and his powder horn was brought back to him and given to his wife, That's and it's now at the William Whitley house. And but Garrett Wall's rifle and powder horn stayed with the family. Mm. He come back. He was kind of a a farmer, if you will. And there's a, a journal a ledger of where that he was selling raising corn for the liquor industry and yeah. sawing wood. And he mm. stayed in Georgetown. His powder horn was made by Francis Tanzel, and we mentioned this briefly yeah. early on. Wow. But the Tanzel family revived a fad to have highly art engraved powder horns. The French and Indian War, they'd been very popular. Uh, they kind of fell out of service during the Revolutionary War, and they were out of vogue until this Athens of the West. The mm-hmm. Bryans were making these wonderful rifles. And you had Francis Tanzel that had been a ship's captain, so he knew all about Scrimshaw and those designs. And he moved into Georgetown, Kentucky in 1798, uh, the first horn that we know that he made is dated 1802. But this 
Garrett Wall's powder horn is huge, mm-hmm. and it's obvious it's been made for him to carry to the Battle of the Thames. Think about this. These old men had had fought in the Revolutionary War. Uh-huh. Their guns and powder horns and stuff was wore out. Yeah. So they yeah. had to have new kits. William Whitley was carrying a brand-new rifle that was made by Jacob Young. Mm-hmm. And Jacob Young made him this huge powder horn uh, that the rhyme on it's just just wonderful. But, but anyway, we've now— discovered there's at least nine of these large powder horns that once upon a time you would have thought that they were kind of a supply horn, Mm -hmm. but they hold like three pounds of powder. Well, if you were leaving to Kentucky and you knew you were going to Chatham, Ontario, Canada, (laughs) you're going to carry a lot of (laughs) gunpowder. So anyway, that was that was one of the great things for the book. And, you know, I said early on that the, the, the book was inspired by this exhibit that was at the Kentucky History wow. Center. And for the first time since the Battle of the Thames, the day of the forlorn hope, mm-hmm. uh, William Whitley's rifle and powder horn was put back together with Garrett Wall's oh, rifle oh, and wow. powder horn. Oh, oh. And... Um, and they they had been separated. An older uh, son had inherited the powder horn, and it had been sold twenty some years ago. And it has been known in the powder horn world as a masterpiece. Yeah. And uh, a fifth great granddaughter of Garrett Wall um, sold Garrett Wall's rifle, and the two were able to be put back together. And uh-huh. it's just it's a Kentucky treasure. Yeah, just uh, totally in- incredible. Um, I, I just love I love the era so much. Um, we can the folks listening if they travel into Kentucky, go down to uh, Stanford, Kentucky, and take uh, the old U.S. one fifty, the the early one. There's a modern one that's out that's gone past it now. But take the olds, the Main Street in Stanford. Uh, you'll come to the William Whitley House, um, and. Um, uh, it's the first brick house ever built in Kentucky. It's got WW in, in the brickwork over the entranceway, the door. And in there, you'll be able to see for yourself the rifle carried by William Whitley at the Battle of the Thames. Well, I also want to kind of interject here. Not only does it say WW on the front, it's now been covered by a kitchen, um, but it says EW on the back. And... That's for Esther Whitley, Esther, his wife. His wife, isn't that and, neat? And, you know, so often the women are not mentioned, but here is early as this first brick house that's made in Kentucky. He thought enough of his wife to put her initials on, on in the bricks of this house. And Esther is known as a wonderful marksman, as wow. a wonderful shot. And the friendly Indians that would come there, um, you know, they would he, – he would bet that Esther could beat them in. And then, <laughs> then those Indians, they loved to go back and get other Indians, and they'd bet that Esther could beat them, you know. So she was quite the novelty. And even on his wonderful rifle that he was carrying when he was killed at the Battle of the Thames, not only does it say WW on the silver in the side plate, it also says EW. Does it really? So, so there was really a family connection. Here wow. was a man that was revering and giving... 
uh, respect yeah. uh, to, to his yeah. wife yeah. as early as 1780 here in Frontier, Kentucky. Yeah. Listen, Kentucky's a remarkable place. It was yeah. then. It is now. It's special. It's magical. And and I, I forgot something earlier, and I've got to spit this in here. <laughs> okay. You know, I was talking about the, the challenge from Pennsylvania over the, the name of the rifle. Well, we went to Pennsylvania and we shot them. And that was actually the beginning of the Kentucky Corps of Long Riflemen. Yeah. And we beat them. <laughs> so all of a sudden now they want to go double or nothing. So then about three weeks later at the Daniel Boone Festival in Barbersville, which we're still having today, we beat them for the second time. <laughs> were, and, you, were you among them? Were you? Uh, no, no, were you, no. Were you, no, no, I wasn't. And, and some of the – there's very few of the people that was that were shooting in yeah. that match then that's still alive. And, yeah. uh, but what – Governor Scranton had done is he had borrowed an original 1816 Pennsylvania rifle mm-hmm. from the Pennsylvania Historical Society. Yeah. So he borrowed this and put it up for a prize, <laughs> never thinking that the Kentuckians is going to beat him. <laughs> well, we've still got that rifle here in Kentucky. <laughs> and it hung over the, it hung over all of the governor's desk for years and right. years. And, and I think Wendell Ford was the last governor that the, I think that so. it was on the wall. And it kind of got lost. I didn't yeah. know where it was at. And while I was working with the Kentucky Historical Society, I mentioned it. And, and the curator there said, I know where it's at. It said it's hanging behind the adjutant general's desk. <laughs> said, I have to fill out loan papers. They never give it to us. So we, we have to fill out loan papers so we can keep this rifle. <laughs> I remember as a kid going to, uh, it was then at uh, the Perryville Battlefield. Yeah. Where the uh, long the Kentucky long riflemen were having their uh, yeah. their uh, tryouts, so to speak. Yep. And um, I remember speaking to this one fellow, Ralph Markham. Oh, absolutely. Ralph, remember just Ralph? Ha- just has died just in the last. I month saw that. Yeah. I saw that. Ralph, uh, he was uh, he stood out in the crowd. He was a short fellow, but yep. he stood out in the crowd yes, he because did. he had these black. Buckskins. <laughs> That's right. And I, I, I was attracted to that. And I, I went over and chatted with him. And I, he goes, uh, I said, uh, you know, are you trying out? He says, yeah. He sa- I said, he says, I make my own rifles. And I, that was one of the first people I ever ran into who made his own. Um, you're another, of course. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Ralph said, yeah, and I got to get this thing through because I got to go back and put the boarding on my house. And I said, where do you live? He said, I live, I live in Sand Gap. Which is a little town, by the way. Just the other side of McKee. <laughs> Just on the other side of McKee <laughs> in the mountains above Berea. Yeah. And um, uh, I said, really, you put the, why do you have to rush to put the boarding? Well, it'll all curl up because it's a full moon out there. And there I got wind. I, this guy is right off the frontier. Yeah. He is right off the frontier. But you're right. The Kentucky Corps of Long Riflemen were just unbeaten. They, yeah. you, Pennsylvania couldn't come close no, to them. No, no, they couldn't. No. <laughs> which, which, by the way, bears up the, the verse in the poem, for well he knew what aim we'd take with our Kentucky rifles. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, listen, my friend, this has been just a blast to talk to you. Um, I have so many thoughts in my head, so many stories that have run through my head that I wanted to bring up with you, and there's just not enough time in the day. Yes. But um, uh, one, I want you to tell everybody now um, how and where they can buy your book. Okay. 
Um, have I got time to, to say just a few words sure. about the, the last chapter in, in the book is called A Tapestry of Cultural Fabric. And that's more than anything else what I want people to understand. This is not a gun book, even though there's maybe 35 or 40 percent of the book is on the study of the American long rifle. But it's an artistic thing. And I started to say early on that we're living in this age that people throw up this this wall. They, they don't mm-hmm. like this, this name rifle or gun. And for some reason, they cannot look at it as an art form. So what I wanted to do is to intermingle this, this iconic Kentucky long rifle in with all of these other items that are always recognized as art forms. Mm-hmm. And the last chapter of the book, what I've done is I there's a wonderful cherry inlaid with bellflower drops on its legs, a sideboard that was made about 1790 in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. And on top of that is a miniature sugar chest that, you know, all of the Kentucky antique collectors, if they don't have a sugar chest, boy, they're looking for one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got pottery from from um, Maysville, Kentucky, yeah. the Woods, Woods Brothers pottery. And then there's a miniature on, on ivory by Matthew Harris Jewett, our most celebrated, Ooh, yeah. uh, you know, portrait artist. Right. Uh, and then hanging on the wall is a is a painting of a little girl by by Joseph Henry Bush, and it's his it's his little niece. And then there's a pistol that was Kentucky made and belonged to uh, William Crabtree and was used at the Battle of Kings Mountain. But when you look at this photograph of all of these things, nothing's out of place. Yeah, there's a powder horn, there's a flintlock pistol, there's there's art, there's furniture, there's all of these different splotches of color that make up this cultural fabric of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And that's what the book is about. It's truly the story of the Western migration of America. Right. But it's it's told through these historic icons and their makers and their owners right. uh, here in the state of Kentucky. Yeah. Um, I shot myself in the book. The book is $79.95. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had so many people said, can I get that on Amazon? Can I get it here or there? Everybody wants to do a 40% wholesale thing. <laughs> and at 40%, I'm losing $7 a book. So my wife and I have done all of the retailing. We're, um, the I've got a web page, and it's intothebluegrass.net. Mm-hmm. You can okay. do a search for Mel Hankla, <clears throat> M-E-L-H-A-N-K-L-A. My email address is melhankla at A-M-H-I-S-S dot com. That stands for American Historic Services. Uh, you can order that book through my email, directly through me. I sign them all. I handle them all. They're all wrapped and and shrink wrap. I unwrap them. I inspect the book. I sign it. If you want it inscribed, I'll inscribe it. And shipping, the best I can do is $8.55. So the book with shipping is $88.50. There's also a deluxe version. There's a signature edition. The only reason that I was able to afford to to do this book and not call for for, um, sponsorships is I'd done a subscription, and there were 162 or three people subscribed to the book and and donated, if you will, $275 to the project. And for them, 
I had 250 copies of a leather-bound cased in a leather-bound slipcase, and those 250 books have an additional 33 pages of information. They have a story that was written by noted um, Kentucky collector Matt Cox. (laughs) He has done a wonderful research study on uh, a group of paintings. Uh, He calls them the Red family paintings, and they descended right. uh, from from Matthew Harris Jewett and, yeah. and Oliver Fraser <clears throat> and different ones. But uh, we added in those books, those 250 copies, they are now $300, and there's 31 copies of those left if anybody mm-hmm. wanted an investment book, something of a collector's item. Yeah. Matt Cox is a wonderful fellow uh, back in Sharon, and— um, Yes, uh, they uh, they were contributors to the production of yours, and uh, they uh, they've contributed to a film we make made on the uh, Lincolns in Kentucky. Yes, uh, they're they're totally devoted to the history of this place. Absolutely, uh, great, great, great people, and um, gosh, it's been fun. Um, I could go on and on, Mel. Um, uh, reminds me of sitting with Mel, <laughs> sitting with uh, with with uh, with Clem. Yeah, uh, good. Um, I'm glad. That's really, you know, what a compliment. What what a great well, it compliment. is. It is. Uh, by the way, I love your quote about Clem, about he telling a, a group that uh, uh, looking into a, a, a campfire. <laughs> he said uh, that is the same thing you'd see that they would have been seen yeah. by prehistoric man. Yeah. And it's the only thing left that man has not screwed up. <laughs> yeah. He used a lot of French in there, too. Oh, you know? but he did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close out with just – I'm going to read you just two verses of the Hunters of Kentucky, and we'll close with this. Okay. Uh, this is uh, – they're seeing the British come at them. This is the Battle of New Orleans. They did not let our patience tire, they meaning the British – before they showed their faces, we did not choose to waste our fire, so snugly kept our places. But when so near we saw them wink, we thought it time to stop them. And twould have done you good to think to see Kentuckians drop them. They found at last twas vain to fight, where lead was all the booty. And so they wisely took to flight and left us all our beauty, meaning the women in New Orleans. And now if danger air annoys, remember what our trade is. Just send for us Kentucky boys, and we'll protect ye ladies. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mel. Thank you. It's Just been an great, honor. So much fun. Yeah, great fun. Thank you. Bye now. This podcast is produced at Dynamics Productions in Lexington, Kentucky, with Neil Kesterson as the audio producer and editor. Your gifts help support the production of this podcast. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast on a one-time or even a monthly basis, please write to us at gmbrown at witnessinghistory.org. Thanks for listening.